Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode about, of, not about, of Cynical About Things. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Tom, and with me, as always, is Henry. Knock, knock. Who's there, Henry? Nobody, because nobody listens to this shit. <laughs> that that is true um that is uh that that is uh why i always refer to our audience uh, as a negative number um <laughs> but yeah so i think that uh a while ago i don't know how many months ago it was at this point but henry and i did i guess what we called like a creative discussion or a writing yeah. discussion um i don't remember exactly what you titled that episode Neither do I. I think creativity workshop or no writing discussion. Okay, writing discussion. So we decided that before the wave of, uh, well, I guess what's next? Uh, Black Panther 2 and then after that Avatar 2. Mm -hmm. um, Before those hit, we decided that we would get in another uh, episode and we decided that it would be another one of those writing discussion, writing workshop, blah, blah, blahs. And so that's where we're going to go with this episode. So with that in mind, uh, Henry, are you workshopping about writing? (laughs) I feel like you were about to say, are you cynical about writing? (laughs) Well, I knew I didn't want to say that, but I also knew that I wanted to lead it with a question. So there you go. That's your prompt. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I've been writing a lot. Um, on our last episode, we talked about a book I was working on at the time called Next Star Over, and that mm-hmm. book is out now. Yep. I remember I jokingly said, because at the time when we were recording that episode, I was thinking about throwing that book in the garbage can. But then huh. we jokingly said towards the end of that one that, you know, since I talked about it now, I have to finish it. That is true. So, so I did, and I'm happy I did. So I'm happy we we had that episode and that we talked about that book. Nice. Um, because I, I originally wasn't even planning on bringing it up. I think you brought it up in the episode. So in, in hindsight, I'm glad you did. Yeah, there uh, you go. Because now looking back on it, I'm, I'm proud of it. And a lot of what we talked about in that episode is what inspired me to get through a lot of the brick walls that I was facing with the draft at the time. Because you remember, since you were reading it as it was evolving, the one draft that I had at that point was very different from what the book ended up being. Yep. Right. Absolutely. So uh, that came out about a month ago, and now I uh, am almost done already with another book called Sunrise Order. Both of these books are expansions of short stories that I had in my short story collection, Real Enough, that came out a year ago. Uh, So I turned Next Star Over into a book, and now I'm turning Sunrise Order into a book. And uh, as of today, as of this recording, I only have like a few more paragraphs of that left to write. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh hopefully that gets done uh but but there even after the writing process is done there's still like so many other things you got to do after that because ne- i this whole like it's a it's divided into six sections and for some reason this very last section i decided to handwrite it so now once that's done i gotta go type it all up and then i gotta make tweaks to that as i'm typing and then i already have notes of other tweaks i need to make to the other sections and you know then i gotta put that all together then i gotta send it out to people to beta read you've been beta reading it as it's been evolving yep and uh so there's still like a whole lot to do but i'm hoping that if all goes well it'll still come out like either at the very end of this year or very beginning of next year so i got that and then uh, I don't really know where I'm going after that. Uh, I have a bunch of poems in between that I've also written, but I have no idea how to organize those. So uh, we'll see if maybe something happens with those. I don't know. But... To be fair, uh, I think that it was 
after your short story collection, you were like, I don't know where what I want to do next. And then after uh, uh, Next Star Over, you were like, I don't know what I want to do next. And this happens every position. single time. Exactly, every single yeah. time. The come down part, I'm always like, crap, now what? But eventually I figure something out. <laughs> yeah, you're not nearly as, as lost as that might sound to all negative three people listening to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you have a pattern, established a pattern so far of writing something getting it out there and then going, I have no idea what I want to do next. And then fairly quickly, actually, I would say kind of figuring out where you want to go next. I think it's usually like a month. There's yeah, usually like, which is a pretty mo- good turnaround. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, a month in, in book terms is, you know, pretty good. Cause I mean, there are, well, obviously there are different levels of, of prolificness. Like Stephen King writes, whatever however many books or pages a, a day or whatever and then some people take like 15 years to write one book so yeah. there you go yeah uh, stephen king writes like six pages a day i think that's what he says mean and puts out about one or two books a year at least one a year uh when he was younger he was doing even more than that but then like you said there's guys like cormac mccarthy and george r, r. martin who like who, who just who the hell knows <laughs> <laughs> yeah george r. r martin has like vanity i mean george r. r martin for how long those books are like he was actually putting them out at a very quick rate, relatively speaking. But then he hit a dance with dragons and it's been he That's... brought down that average real bad. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I mean the seeds for that brick wall were already planted as early as uh I guess you could say the third one, a storm what is a, a sword of storms, a storm of swords. A storm of swords. Right. Cause that one kind of ends in a way where he was about to do a time skip after that, but then he was like, nah, fuck that. And instead he split it up geographically where like feast for crows covers everything happening up north and then dance with dragons is everything down south right yeah basically it's it's more of a it's more of a east west thing but yeah yeah and basically and i as i understand it the those two different like pathways still haven't even been merged back together so in in a weird way he's basically still been writing the sequel to a storm of swords this whole time this whole 20 years (laughs) yep yay yeah see this is the thing is uh uh i would say that well that's actually an interesting thing is you you tend to like periodically give me updates on your writing pace i guess you would say like Uh you you know you periodically text me and are like oh i got this many words done today or i got like a paragraph done today or whatever and it's like uh when put in those terms you know I can kind of visualize your your progress. I can't even imagine how much or how little George R. R. Martin gets I, in a day. I, I have no fucking clue. I have no. And, he, and even if he says something, like he, at this point, I consider him an unreliable narrator. I don't trust uh, yeah. a single thing that guy says Absolutely. on his blog or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he. I think he said like, "I'm not going to work on the House of House of the Dragon at all until Winds of the Winter Winds of Winter is out." And then he was like. Hey, HBO, I want to be involved in House of the Dragon way more than I was uh-huh. in the later seasons of Game of Thrones. And it's like, so is the Winds of Winter coming out then? And he's like, nope. <laughs> okay, so you just like changed your mind, I guess. I, I mean, think which... at this point, the because House of the Dragon is based on that book, uh, Fire blood, and Blood. Fire, fire, Fire and Blood, yeah. And, and that, that was supposed to be part one of a two-part volume, so I'm pretty sure now fire and blood volume two which he said the title that might actually just be changed to blood and fire to keep it simple 
that that definitely takes priority over wins a winner now considering how popular the sh- that show is now house of the dragon yeah and i think that george R. R. martin has said like in order to avoid a game of thrones happening he mm-hmm. wants to like get both books out and then fairly heavily dictate. I think he says that he wants four full seasons for the show to be like the complete narrative of, of book one and book two. So basically mm-hmm. two seasons per show. Per, per, yeah. So uh, as you just said that the fact that he clearly has such a more of like a grand architect design to even the show indicates that he's gonna be pushing way harder for uh Blood and Fire and House of the Dragons seasons three and four from here on out. Oh, yeah. Not only that, but Kit Harrington now wants to make a Game of Thrones sequel show about John, just Jon Snow. And I think right now, as of right now, that show is going to just be called Snow. Yeah, it's going to be called Snow, just like how it's called like Reacher and Picard. And we all know yeah. how those turn out. They turn uh-huh. out wonderfully. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just a, that alone just makes it sound so uninspired, but... We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But I think Harrington said he wants George R. R. Martin to be heavily involved with that, too. So, yeah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, George R. R. Martin did, I believe, start his career as a TV writer, actually. He did. Well, um, it's you know He started as a as a literary writer, but uh, he had a book called The Armageddon Rag that flopped so bad that in order to sustain himself financially, he went into TV writing. And originally he planned to only do that for a little bit, but he ended up liking it enough to do it for like 10 years or something like that, 10 or 15 years. But then one day he had a dream about basically the, that first scene of game of Thrones with the dire wolves and all that shit. And that's basically what got him back into writing books. Yeah. I was going to say, he seems to be a pretty strong writer from the perspective of taking his existing material and adapting it to screen like he seems to, yeah he seems to be very good at understanding how scenes that are much beefier and slower or what have you whatever words you want to say much different in the books can be tr- effectively translated to the screen and like where to put emphasis and where to de-emphasize things right um, so he's clearly got a good mind for both like novels and tv but i would be surprised if he could just write like a tv show from scratch that would, yeah that seems out of his skill set it does because usually i'm pretty sure all tv shows that he worked on when he was doing tv in the 80s was like stuff that he was hired to do for other people like he was brought on to twilight zone then he was brought on to some kind of beauty and the beast adaptation mm, okay. so it was all it was all stuff like that yeah and like game of thrones i don't think when he originally uh, came up with the idea for it in the 90s i don't think it would have worked as a tv show in the 90s like it, on that scope and scale it needed to be books for that time period you know yeah I mean? and also yeah. like you needed a huge cultural shift of like people becoming obsessed with like zombies and like people being more accepting of like darker themes and tv shows and even just fantasy in general because that's and fantasy really... because lord of the rings exactly yeah, yeah then yeah. that was only 10 years later so you know yeah exactly there's like it's kind of interesting that the Lord of the Rings really opened up so much stuff. Those movies, I mean, obviously the books yeah. have been around forever, but both uh, the books and films, I would argue, were innovative yeah, well, for the their books, respective formats. Yeah. The books borderline invented modern fantasy. Yeah, I mean, there are argument, predecessors yeah. to the Lord of the Rings, but they're not very significant. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the movies opened up so much stuff. Basically, directly led to uh the 
Game of Thrones show, mm-hmm. which has then led to like the video games and the show of The Witcher and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So like that genre has and like the the uh, TV show adaptation of um, Wheel of Time and all that. Right. Yeah. It's funny how things repeat themselves because like the Lord of the Rings books inspired the Game of Thrones books to be made. And then the Lord of the Rings movies inspired the Game of Thrones show to be made. So it's like things go in cycle. Pop culture goes in cycles. You know what I mean? Like a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and as far as I know, the main inspiration of A Song of Ice and Fire is actually like a French book series called like Our Accursed Kings or something. Uh, oh, it, I it, mean, I'm sure there were yeah. there were lots of influences, just like how there were lots of influences with Star Wars. But you can't deny that Lord of the Rings at least played some influence with Game of Thrones. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, it played some, yeah. yeah, just like how Shakespeare played some influence. I mean, like in terms yeah. of fantasy writing, A Song of Ice and Fire is actually very detached from a lot of like the magical, like elves and dwarves and true, true and stuff. I would say that Lord of the Rings is probably pretty low on its influences, but it's there, yeah. obviously. Yeah, it's obviously there. So, but no, but you are right about that. Like other things, like War of the Roses and stuff, are definitely more of an influence. Yeah, yeah. a lot of historical fiction, I would imagine. And then, yeah, right. that, like um, it's it, obviously the title is actually in French, but like it, I think it's something like Our Cursed Kings, and it's like it's a very similar kind of plotline where it's like mm. uh, kings warring and like illegitimate sons set in like borderline fictional France. Like, yeah, so, interesting. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, uh, it is it is pretty it is pretty interesting though. I mean, I haven't checked out uh, House of the Dragon. I'm I actually haven't read Fire and Blood either. I would be curious to read that. I'm more of a book person than TV shows generally, but I mean, I loved the first four seasons of Game of Thrones, and I've had friends tell me that so far House of the Dragon is starting off on like a pretty strong foot that's like roughly equivalent to some of the stronger seasons so that's what i've heard too yeah that is uh that's a good sign i would say i approve so what have you been working on since i kind of (laughs) talked about my stuff yeah um i've i it's funny that you mentioned um it's funny that you mentioned uh george r martin be having that dream of the direwolves um Kind of, like, very, I don't know if very randomly, but, like, yeah, sort of sort of out of the blue, like, four or five months ago, I had uh, a dream that would be too annoying to actually describe what happened in. But bo- basically, it inspired me to, to start writing this novel idea. And it's kind of interesting because I've been writing off and on in varying levels of seriousness since I was like six. But this is like one of the first times that I feel like a project has really like grabbed me. And it's kind of cool that the inspiration sort of just came out of nowhere. Um, It's like, it's not one of those ideas that I've been sitting on forever, which I Mm -hmm. think sometimes can be like scarier to write because you've been holding on to them for so long. I've been there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But Basically, I guess if I had to describe it very quickly, it's um, it's kind of like a urban fantasy-ish heist sort of narrative. Those are the primary elements to it. And it heavily involves... Uh, you, you've actually been watching Avatar The Last Airbender, so now I can reference this. Mm-hmm. It, it heavily... You, 
the the core fantasy component of it is that there are people who are essentially capable of accessing something very similar to the spirit realm in Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm. Um, so essentially bad guys, if you want to call them that, have been taking artifacts that allow people to access the spirit realm. And this person gets dragged into this conflict trying to chase them down because when they steal those artifacts, they start upsetting the balance in the world and things start kind of going wonky and the spirit world starts bleeding into the physical world and the physical world starts bleeding into the spirit world a little bit. Mm. So uh, that's that's basically the, the premise, I would say. Um, and I say that it's urban fantasy because it's kind of like it's like set in a, a city very reminiscent of uh, like a modern day city like hong kong or whatever one of those big neon everywhere sort of uh, huge skyline sort of thing but that's like that's the setting for like the first act of the story and then as the story progresses and they start following these thieves who took these artifacts they go out into the countryside where there's stronger connections to the spirit realm because of nature and old temples and all that stuff so yeah nice i like it yeah, that's what I've been working on, and I would say that um, I spent phew, I spent probably about a month doing like character outlines stuff. I remember in the that. Background. I remember you yeah. telling me about that. Yeah, um, I, that was something that I haven't ever done before. Actually, I've I've read a lot of books on writing and how to write and all that stuff, and very recently I came across a book that, funny enough, actually its primary thing is how to to uh do screenwriting funny enough talking about george r, r. martin with his screenwriting uh, job is this uh, save the cat or is this some other book no no i think it's just called screenwriting okay. um funny enough but mm. uh that the, the guy who wrote that actually recommended doing these character outlines and i had never i i had heard of like the idea of doing them before um yeah but I had never done them and I liked the way that he he pitched them was that it's kind of like it's kind of like a series of just asking yourself questions about the characters and seeing where it leads you. Yeah. And you start with really basic questions like where were they born? How old are they? Blah blah blah. Right. But then you like incidentally kind of end up getting dragged into more things because you say like you end up asking a pretty innocuous question like what's their family situation like? Right. And then you kind of come up with an answer to that but then maybe there's something that falls out of that that's a little bit more complex right um so yeah i i did that for a bunch of the core characters and so i spent probably about a month doing that and a little bit working on the setting and stuff and then i in the past two weeks actually started writing it and i think i told you this henry but my goal right now is basically to just burn through a first draft as fast as possible to sort yeah. of like feel out and discover the story um and then actually tried to make it good on the second and third and blah times around. Right. Yeah. That's how they say you got to do it. Yeah. So far it's been, it's, it's kind of like hard because I think that, uh, I think that kind of everybody has this a little bit, but it's like hard to write something and like, know that you don't really like it, but move on anyway. Because yeah. it's like sitting in the background there, and you're like, "Ugh, I want to, I want to fix this, or I want to like figure, like think about yeah. this." But I have found so far that like 
in previous attempts of of like years ago when I would write even like short stories or or novels or whatever, I would start overthinking scenes that I like didn't feel like I got right the first time around and then I would just burn out and not get anywhere. So it's been a lesson in patience, I guess, to uh, to do it better this time around where I'm just kind of forcing myself to accept things as they are. And so far, mm-hmm. it's been pretty be- beneficial, I would say. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah I don't I... know if that's uh, what you do, but... Uh... Oh, like uh, when you know something is shit, but you have to keep writing through it anyways. Yeah. You... Yeah. Um, I kind of had that experience when I, with that draft of Next Star Over that I was talking about a little earlier uh, that I had when we did the last one of these writing workshops. I kind of I think in the back of my mind, I knew something was wrong, but I finished it anyways. And um, I'm trying to think if I've gone through. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have gone through that in the past, too, with like very early, early stories that you've also read from like, uh, I, I, I guess now we're talking like six years ago. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy how time flies. But you remember that stuff, right? When I was oh, yeah. like kind like of the very into... earliest stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was like into more post-apocalyptic kind of fiction. Like... Yeah, I do remember that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So those kinds of drafts, I remember writing them and thinking like, yeah, I know this is shit, but I just got to keep writing this. <laughs> you know, it, I don't know. I, I kind of have always equivalent, equivalated it to, is that a word? Well, it's a word now. Um, <laughs> equated it. Oh, yeah, to, equated uh, it. Exercising, you know, even though I'm, I'm being a hypocrite here because I don't really work out, but <laughs> I, I've attempted to in the past and I know that, you know, there's that initial like slope you got to get through of like the learning curve of like, you know, you know that you're not really making much progress on physique and, you know, you're basically just getting the form down and you just got to go through that, those initial pain points, you know, before you really like, I don't know, ride the wave, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do know. I do know what you mean there is like, um, it is kind of interesting because it's uh, it's something that in the back of my mind, like, I guess I knew because uh, you and I have discussed this, but like I have like a I have like a I call it my little sandbox. Uh, I have like a little sandbox story where I like take an existing setting and then I like take existing characters and I put them together. And I guess you could kind of call it fan fiction, though I wouldn't say that it quite resembles any fan fiction that I've ever read otherwise. But uh, it's funny because I'll write that, and I don't take it too seriously. But I do notice that when I get through a scene really quickly and then I read back through it, I notice that I like improve it so much on that reread. So it's funny that I've been like kind of inadvertently using that knowledge of like just get through a first draft and then go fix it later but i don't know what it is when it's like that for some reason i can write that sandbox thing in such a mindset that it's like this shit doesn't matter it's just a bunch of crap like whereas i guess with this it's like i still have that like blocker that's like oh no i'm trying to take this seriously but it's like you kind of actually have to forget that you're trying to take anything you really do you really do yeah and um as far as what you were saying before about a uh, character outlines, I, I don't know if I've ever done that as extensively as you for this project you've got, but for, for the one I'm working on now for sunrise order, I did. My starting point was that I did. Uh, well, actually my real starting point was that I envisioned it as being like a five man band story. Cause there's five yeah, protagonists and originally they were all going to be together in the plot. And I, 
it, I tried so many different outlines like that and it just wasn't working. It kept collapsing like a house of cards every single time. And then finally <laughs> I came up with the idea to separate them into pairs and have like three different storylines going on at once. And my way of doing that was I, I listed all the characters out on a piece of paper in my notebook actually. And I listed like, uh, I forget exactly what structure I had, but it was something like, what is their flaw? What's the mistake they make? How do they learn from that mistake? And then how do they resolve it? I think those were like the steps. Oh, that nice. I, yeah. And I did that for all five characters. And then I added even more characters on top of that. And it kind of, and then everything just came together from there. Well, you know, what's like actually kind of interesting there is like, um, you were saying like, well, actually, let me ask a clarifying question. Are, were those, are those mistakes or whatever? Are these things that they like make during the story or they make during like in their backstory? During the story. Okay, yeah, yeah. What's kind of interesting about that is that um uh like the outlines that I was doing are entirely limited to their backstory. Oh um, before right. they ever even land on the page. Right. Um and you know what's really fascinating is and this I don't know, <laughs> I think that maybe to some people this will sound totally bonkers, but I started writing this book without any idea of what the plot was. Mm. I, I, I knew some, it's funny. I'm not a big theme person, but yeah, you and I are like polar opposites. in that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You love themes. Uh, I knew some themes that I wanted to play with. I had, Mm -hmm. at least in my opinion, some pretty like vivid ideas for characters and I had a setting and I knew a little bit about how I wanted the, the access to this spirit world to work. And other than that, I've kind of been writing it and discovering the plot as I go. But what's really fascinating is that basically everything that I've done of the plot so far has fallen out of those backstory outlines, Mm. like uh, repeated, like, something resurfaces from somebody's past or or the fact that this person's parents did this comes back to bite them because now they have to do that like that's it's kind of weird like i haven't re- i didn't i don't have an ending in mind i don't have like, yeah so you're you're really much more on the stephen king end of the spectrum when it comes to writing you know writing without a plot writing without an ending in mind you know kind well of. what's interesting though is that like the it's weird like i wrote out a ridiculously meticulously designed backstory but that's it like yeah well king does that too king's whole philosophy is take a really interesting character and put them in a really interesting situation and then see where it goes from there but in order to have your character be interesting you have to like uh you have to know who they are beforehand you know what i mean i'm sure he even if he doesn't take notes, I'm sure he like builds up a bunch of backstory in his head, even if he doesn't write it down. Because how else are you going to like make a character interesting to use his terminology? You know what I mean? Like, I yeah, know. I mean, I to be perfectly honest, I have no idea how. I knew that Stephen King considered himself a quote unquote panther. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, it's it's kind of interesting because this is the first time that I've ever tried writing like this i normally uh-huh. try to i don't try to like rid like rigorously outline my stories but i would say that i like i really like to go in with 
Like, at least the ending in mind. I know you used to like to do that. I used I... to like to go in with the ending in mind, but I what's funny is I find that ha- not having the ending in mind is ridiculously freeing and I it's weird. Like I'm excited to discover the ending to my own story, but then mm. this is where the important part comes in is when I whenever I figure out what the ending is. I'm going to have to probably change a lot of the earlier parts of the story. Oh, to yeah, that's what they say about lead to it. Right, right. That's what they say. That's why Stephen King's ending seems so fucking out of nowhere. It's because in order to do the whole pantsing thing really right, is you have to, like you said, once you really do get to that ending, now you got to go back and do a whole new draft from scratch that really fits with that ending. Like, exactly, which is yeah. what I'm planning to do, but... It's weird. And King claims he does that, but I think he's like half bullshitting. (laughs) I don't think he 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 revises as much as he claims to. But yeah, yeah. I mean, he probably he probably. I wouldn't be surprised if he he does fair. Like he probably puts in you know new scenes and stuff like that. But no, Stephen King's endings are. He's like infamous for being like completely off the wall. He's bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. Even it's gotten to the point where he's even like made fun of himself for it. Like he's accepted it and embraced it at this point. You know. Yeah, Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't. I don't necessarily want this to you know turn out turn out that way. But yeah, the the thing that I'm like thinking about is it's like, hmm, will this ending make sense with the first draft? Which maybe it will. Who knows? Or will it be something where I have to go back and change a lot? And I'm 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 open to either. Uh, potential that's good but what's fascinating about is that i've just never considered writing this way but it's weird how at the one suggestion of a random guy who wrote a book about screenwriting which this isn't even a screen play play uh just said like make character outlines i like loved doing the character outlines and then when i finished them i was like wait i feel like i'm ready to write (laughs) and it's weird because like i don't feel like i should have been but Mm whatever that's how it goes yeah no i mean if anything it'll hopefully make the your story feel more character driven which a lot of people argue those are usually the better stories anyways and uh as opposed to being like world driven you know i don't know or event driven i suppose and yeah i mean to be fair there's a lot of like kind of semi-obvious stuff that's fallen out of like the backstories like it ended up being that i was like oh well uh the main character's uncle is a runs a museum that stores a lot of these artifacts and then i went well obviously there has to be a heist involved like mm. uh, duh right. <laughs> like i mean why why would my brain come up with the person as a museum director with spiritually relevant artifacts yeah if there wasn't going to be a heist so like there have don't get me wrong i say that i don't have the ending in mind but i do have plot points along the way already in mind because they just right. kind of are really obvious mm-hmm. um but yeah, I don't technically have an ending in mind. I have I have scenes in mind that are very close to the ending, but that's about it. Hmm. Yeah, and sometimes you probably at least have a feeling, at least of an end, like sort of like you could blur, like see it subconsciously in your head, like blurry. Uh, totally, totally. Yeah, kind of. It's almost it's weird. Yeah. It's like yeah, you can almost like it's like trying to remember a dream or something yeah it's like trying to remember a dream or like you have it's like i know that this will be the feeling of the ending like right like i don't know exactly what's going to be causing that feeling but i know it's going to feel this way and mm-hmm. i do have those you are right yeah um, and, and it's kind of cool because every time i write that picture becomes a little bit clearer clear yeah yeah so it'll be cool to see i guess how it comes out i'd say that i'm about 
twenty percent into fifteen percent into it, maybe twenty mm-hmm. something like that, somewhere around there. So. Do do you expect it to be like a a, a big book? Because like I I write books, but like let's face it, my books are novelettes. You know, they're they're fucking pamphlets. You know what I mean? Do, do, you, ex- <laughs> do you expect it to be like an actual book or like a book like mine? Uh, I expect it to be an actual book. I would say yeah, probably yeah. like. I mean, it's kind of hard to compare, but uh, it's hard to like for me to put books in mind. But you know, I would say that it's like going to be pretty traditional novel length. Yeah, yeah, like fifty thousand words or whatever. Probably a little bit, bit longer than that, but yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, because yeah, probably... fifty thousand is the minimum they say usually for something being considered a book. Yeah, I was going to say probably going to be closer to. 75 okay yeah that's definitely a solid book then yeah yeah i mean again it's kind of like tough to tell uh yeah who knows maybe it'll grow bigger maybe it'll be cut maybe Mm -hmm. whatever will happen but yeah yeah it should be it should be pretty interesting because i think that this is i think that this is the farthest that i've gotten into a book that i've been writing while still feeling good about it if that makes good yeah and I, I don't feel like really imagine ahead. that slowing down at all because I still feel very good about it. So nice, nice. Yeah, that's kind of. I think that's more or less how I felt about Sunrise, the one I'm working on now. But with me, it was different because in order to get there, like I was saying earlier, I had to do tons and tons of plotting ahead of time to even get to that feeling. You know, mm. where where he's uh, you kind of. I mean, yeah, you did a lot of character building and stuff, but like the, for the plot, you're just diving in blind it sounds like you know so basically that's really interesting yeah yeah like during the during the character backstory backstory thing i was like uh there were a couple things where it's like that scene has to happen and like that Mm -hmm. scene has to happen and like as i said like well if this guy's a museum person who keeps track of artifacts it's like well probably one of those artifacts has to go missing right uh, right or more of them and it's like okay that makes sense and yeah so like things fit together but i wouldn't say that it's like yeah i mean ultimately it's like i guess i think that in fact actually i think that in that screenwriting book somebody the the author said this is like some people think of an event and discover the characters along the way and some people yeah. think of characters and discover the, discover the event along, along the way yeah and i think that normally i used to do it the first way but this time i'm doing it the second way Gotcha, gotcha. I think in my case with both Next Star Rover and now Sunrise Order, I started with characters. I'm pretty sure. Or no. Okay. No, I think I really more I started more with setting and then characters and then events. I think that was like the order my brain went in for both books. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll just be blunt. They're both basically just Star Wars ripoffs. So <laughs> Well, yeah. the one is kind of like feels very like superhero y, you know? The, the new one? The yeah, one Sunrise Order. Yeah, but it's still like set on another planet. But it's true, they don't go to space. They, it all just stays on that one planet, so... It's like if there was if there was a prequel that was set on Krypton. Krypton. I was about to say, it's like if Superman never left Krypton. Yeah, yeah so, that's, that's very much what But it Superman is like something in between superheroes and sci-fi because when Superman was invented, superheroes as we know them now didn't even really exist yet. He's basically the starting point of that. That's true. So... There's a little bit of a gray area there. Yeah, that's actually but, a good point. Yeah. Yeah. 
But next star over is basically just a Star Wars ripoff. It's in the title, you know. I shouldn't say too much because Disney's going to come come and be a cease and desist ready for my ass. Our our one listener is is uh, <laughs> is a Disney guy. Is a Disney employee. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I always think of I always think of uh, next star over as like Space Indiana Jones. Yeah, that's a better way to describe. It. And that's honestly that that was the starting point of that. That's what I was going for. Yeah, because I yeah. mean, like, obviously, there's there's some stuff that bears resemblance between just like advent the the, the genre of adventure. Adventure, like, yeah, yeah. so vague that yeah, exactly. Yeah, but true. so there there obviously is some like Star Wars in there, but I would primarily say that it's like you took you took like the Flash Gordony sci-fi pulpy thing and then put it on top of Indiana Jones. I would right, say, which was big one which was exactly my mission statement. Well, cause that really what happened was that, uh, I, I guess, you know, I wrote that somewhat controversial article about why I think the empire strikes back is a little overrated a few years ago. And, yep. um, you know, there was that book that came out around the same time called splinter of the mind's eye. That was basically like what star Wars would have done had the empire strikes back now existed. And even though that was inferior to Empire Strikes Back, it still had like a charm to it that I kind of liked. So, and Next Starver was like my way of trying to get back to that. So. Yeah, it's like a love letter to what was never. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's a cool way of putting it. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no I think <laughs> I might riff on that a little bit. Like if I ever revisit that world or anything like that, which, oh, by the way, I don't know if we want to talk about that, but like, has your brain ever like, thought about like what if i ever do sequels to these things do i want to do sequels like do you do you have that dilemma at all um i would say at least i would say that it has happened with stories that i've thought of in the past with this one maybe it's just because i'm so early in the process that hasn't occurred to me or gotcha i would say this um thematically the story is very about very much about accepting the ends of things so, so I feel like it would be kind of like a sellouty thing if it yeah, had sequels. Yeah. Um, also, it's one of those things where there's a lot of classic hero's journey sort of things in it. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, blah character uh, learns how to access the spirit realm and blah, 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 and becomes, you know, progressively better at it and like has people train him and whatnot. And it's like, uh, I don't really know how one could continue that if anything i would actually say that the better way to expand on this idea just intuitively to me right now would be a prequel Mm, um because if i i'll I'll elaborate on that a tiny bit is um basically i actually explained this part to you is basically the main character a tragedy happened in his backstory and he left his home city for a few years and then at the beginning of this story he's coming back for the first time and he's planning on only coming back for a little bit but obviously we know how that how that goes Mm -hmm. uh he gets sucked into things and has to hang around longer Mm -hmm. um but during those years where he's gone the rest of the cast of the novel is learning about the spirit world and kind of starting their own adventures in it. And the main antagonist is prominently around during that time. Mm. Um, so if anything, I would probably write a prequel about the main antagonist. Okay. 
that's that's intuitively that's the way to do it at least at this moment but yeah nice i like that premise idea yeah so what of of, of the cool about well both i i like the idea of like the protagonist having been away for a few years and now there's like dissonance because like as someone who's also moved away for a few years and then come back to places i kind of relate to that i think a lot of other people do like go away for college and then come back home, you know, yep. like things are, and, and uh, not only that, but I, I like your idea of potentially doing a prequel where you flip the perspectives. Cause I'm assuming that's what you meant by it. Like we're now the antagonist is the protagonist, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, again, not to, well, I mean, how can you, how can you spoil something that isn't existent yet? Um, <laughs> uh, basically uh, the, the main antagonist of the, the main antagonist of the real book, not the fake prequel that I'm talking about. The main antagonist <laughs> okay. of the real book is used to be a friend of mm. the protagonist before they left. Gotcha. And then things changed in their lives over those four years. And when they come back, everything has been recontextualized. They're two different people. Um, and now they're on opposite sides of this thing. Yeah. So they're supposed relatable. to be... A, <laughs> they're supposed to be a sympathetic person in that like they were once friends and they once yeah. did get along and now they have a difference of opinion. Yeah. So a prequel would really help build that person out as mm. like a fundamentally a fairly decent person mm-hmm. who has just gone down a different life path. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's why I say that it's kind of like the intuitive thing to do. Yeah. Just don't make them, you know, like Anakin Skywalker and make them hate sand or, or any of that. Or kill children. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no, of, no. Yeah, prequels about people who were villains that were once heroes or however you want to look at it. Something that um, yeah. something that I'm actually pretty happy with, and maybe you'll relate to this a little bit because uh, I know that you, you, I, I, I have a pretty decent bearing on your personal taste in things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you know, you're, you're a big fan of like the the adventure the more the more fun things the less dour things yeah yeah Um, yeah yeah. and what's kind of neat about this um story that i like that wasn't actually even intentional is that uh i the the like there's there's very little like non-pg violence if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like there's not a lot of like death mm-hmm. i guess is what i'm saying and i like that because i don't know i feel like i feel like um i feel like i enjoy things like avatar the last airbender where there can be still conflict but not just like constant death uh-huh. uh because i don't know i guess i I guess I don't like feeling like I'm getting numb to death. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I so <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's not something that I was aiming for when I first uh-huh. set out for this, but it's something that has conveniently come out of things, and I'm yeah. like pretty happy with it. So. Yeah, I define stories on a spectrum of realism versus escapism. I think I've talked about this before on here. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but uh, basically. You know, uh, all stories are a combination of those two things, just that some stories tend to lean more one way and other stories tend to lean more the other way. And yep. I think for stuff that's like, you know, high fantasy, like exists on another world, uh, spectacle stuff, that, that it's usually better when you lean on the escapism side of things. <laughs> and uh, if that makes sense, you know, and then I guess for like stories that take place on Earth, quite frankly, you know, like real life is hard. So those stories kind of work better when you 
lean more on the realism side of things of like acknowledging how death is a part of life or, or however you want to look at it. But I mean, obviously there's outliers in both of those cases, you know I mean? There's exceptions to the rule, but generally that's how I see it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Funny enough, actually death thematically is actually a very important part of this story. Mm-hmm. It's just that um, uh, there isn't a lot of like character death, I guess I would say. Gotcha. Um, a lot of it is isolated in the backstories or in themes of things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that that probably looks better, depending on what kind of tone you're going for. But yeah, but it sounds like you're going more for like the escapism kind of tone. So I think what you're describing works better because you know, like even in escapist stories or like you know high fantasy stories, you know, playing around with themes of loss and stuff like that is still important because it really is just a part of life. You know, we all lose things, you know, we all have to let go of things. So that's also just inherent human nature. It's just a matter of like the, how intensely you want to integrate that into your story, I guess. And that's really where it comes down to like, what's best for what genre or what's best for what tone or what have you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I guess, um, I guess my point is that I've just been kind of like pleasantly surprised by it because uh sometimes i find it hard to like write those more like i guess like difficult like death scenes and stuff like that and i too. i've uh again as i said like thematically death is still relevant mm-hmm. and uh i i have a much easier time approaching that topic from more of a thematic angle than I do more of a literal angle, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that That's part it. has been uh, a pleasant surprise for me. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds really exciting. I mean, what are some other influences on it? Because you brought up Airbender, uh, but are there other things that... Um, yeah, so Airbender is a big one. Um, and I call it airbender to avoid confusion with blue people avatar. <laughs> oh yeah. That's, that's pretty smart. Uh, and to avoid confusion with the last airbender, um, the movie. Oh, right. See, I, I blinked that. I blinked that out of my brain, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, some, go ahead. <laughs> some other theme, uh, like, uh, influences, I guess. Um, well, let's see. So I would say that a video game called sleeping dogs is a big one. Um, and the, the re I'll, I'll elaborate on that for you because you probably don't know that game. Nope. Um, basically sleeping dogs is there's a guy, uh, his name's Wei Shen and he grew up in Hong Kong and somewhere in his, uh, teenage years, he moves to San Francisco. And then in his twenties, he moves back to Hong Kong and, mm. uh, his friends have changed and he gets tied up in personal events there so you can kind of see the influence there yeah um you know uh i guess i would say like that theme is like homecoming like that plot yeah yeah, yeah. like coming back to somewhere for for the four-year gap did you specifically pick four years because of like four years of high school four years of college or or was that just a coincidence um it it is in it it is intentionally that yes uh gotcha basically uh the the in this the guy is like in his last year i guess it would be of college and he's like coming back home for the first time for like a 
uh, break because of an important family event has happened. Mm. Um, and he's really only supposed to be home for like a week mm. uh, because of that break. But he ends up choosing to stay, um, mm. which I guess probably has terrible effects on his uh, college career but whatever <laughs> um <laughs> i'll 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 deal with that later in the plot yeah. um yeah. but yeah so uh so yeah uh, airbender sleeping dogs um i guess i would say like it's kind of hard to say what specific one but like just coming of age stories in general but like yeah. not really like airbender kind of coming of age stories but like coming of age stories that are like set in you know like youth and like school uh i guess a little bit of like um uh the breakfast club is in there uh mm -hmm. because of the different people and how they've changed and their their interpretations of each other versus the reality of it um that's in there a little bit of um a little bit of teen titans i would say is in there um, mm -hmm. just I, I can't help be influenced by them because I grew up with that like they are they're a five man band trope and there's a little bit of like a little bit of the dynamics between the titans I've taken and kind of resonated with and have included so I would say that those are probably the biggest ones um, a book I'm reading uh, or a book I just read that's actually like a very recent book I think it came out in like july or august called portrait of a thief i've been a little bit inspired by that because there's a lot of like cultural dissonance themes in that mm -hmm. um, so yeah those are those are probably the big ones i would say nice yeah it's pretty cool that you're pulling from like stuff that i've never heard before and stuff that sounds like a little more obscure to me like that video game so but then again i'm not a gamer so all video games sound obscure to me or most of them at least <laughs> yeah that's that's fair i guess there's um because of the urban fantasy setting i guess there's a little bit of like the magicians in there um mm. you know. oh yeah that i guess i must have missed that when you were talking about it before but so this is an urban fantasy setting yeah yeah, yeah this is an urban fantasy setting. so like um uh they grew the the cast all grew up in this city that you could basically just equate to like san francisco new york like a very modern city yep and i've selectively chosen to remove certain like technologies from the world but otherwise it's a pretty recognizable world you could almost probably imagine it as like imagine like one of these big cities new york whatever in tokyo in the 90s that's mm. probably basically what it is. Mm, I like um, it. Not a lot of cellular technology, not a lot of personal communication technology, but there is like a very high standard of life living sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. Uh, that's that's the setting. And then, yeah, like, I guess, I guess I'm sort of playing with a bit of a theme here of, you know, as humans have gotten more technologically advanced. They've kind of like broken away from more of like the spiritual side of things. Yeah. And basically like in the city, there's not a very strong spiritual connection anymore. All of these old spiritual artifacts that used to be, you know, cherished things are now put in a museum that then gets broken into and stolen from. Uh, and then like, uh, the first act of the story basically takes place in that city, but then they have to go outside of the city. Uh, and that ends up leading into like the countryside where the mm. world is a little bit less tamed. And there's, 
uh, older stuff and there's more spread out communities. There's a lot more nature yeah. and that's nice. more spiritually rich sort of thing. Nice. Um, so yeah, the, the, it's, it's like urban fantasy that kind of translates into uh, not really like high fantasy, like elves and crap, but like becomes less urban as it goes. I like it. The yeah. more you talk about it, the more excited I am for it actually. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. that, uh, this is probably the most that I've talked about it to anybody. I've, I've talked about it in bits and pieces to people here and there. Uh-huh. Um, but this is probably the most that I've actually had to like justify it. <laughs> um, mm. So I'm glad to hear that you're, you're, it's, it's resonating with you to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. You can almost look at it as like a pitch almost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's something that I realized very quickly up front was like, I think when I first said it to you, I don't know, maybe I missed, maybe I forgot to say urban, but I said like a fantasy book with a lot of heist themes to it. Um, And I guess I used another important word, like a homecoming is a very important plot element to it thematically. Mm -hmm. Um, I've learned uh, the only other person that I've talked to about it, even nearly this much, when I first explained it to them, it was like, a month and a half ago when I was like, before I even started doing the character outlines uh-huh. and my pitch was just so rambly. And I could tell like from the look on their face that they were just like, Tom, what are you talking about? Like, what? <laughs> and so now I've learned like what words to use to communicate the ideas a little bit better. I mean, I imagine yeah. that I'm still kind of rambly for all negative three people listening to this, but I've learned a little bit better how to pitch it. <laughs> I mean, I'm starting to get a better picture of what you're talking about, so it's working for me at least. So that's nice. That's yeah, cool. yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I'm I'm pretty excited about it. It's like uh, I don't know. I don't know if you have this with your writing, but like, um, do you ever like get random flashes of things or like ideas, and you like kind of just like they're so vivid that you kind of like end up holding on to them but you don't know where to use them ever i've found that this story incidentally has been like a nice place for a lot of these things that i like dreamed up years ago of Mm -hmm. just like this as a setting for a scene and like this as like an environment or like this were this phrase being said or whatever i found that this has been a nice like place to deploy a lot of those which is nice because it feels like i'm kind of like cleaning out my brain right right (laughs) i I kind of experienced that with next door over because i think one of the reasons why i tend to stick to space is because it's like the perfect balance for me between like you can make it about anything like you go to this planet and this planet is like this and that planet is like that you know and it's like you could kind of slide the scale a lot when you're doing space opera and um so there were like a lot of like images in my head for years that i was able to kind of finally put into that like the the final story takes place on uh like a purple planet with green lava in the bottom that was like an image that had been in my head probably since i was like a kid and like i finally got to do it you know it's oh, like wow. shit, shit like that yeah yeah I, I really like um i really like that feeling of like things that have felt kind of important to you for a little bit for whatever yeah. reason even if they kind of actually on their surface seem sort of insignificant uh-huh. um, like actually getting to use them somewhere right because like obviously nobody else i mean i didn't until you said it 
just now, but like nobody else will get the significance of that. Like, no, it's a yeah. nice personal thing of like, yeah, it's the purple planet with the green lava. There we go. Right. <laughs> it's there. Finally, it's somewhere. It's a exactly. place. It's a real place or right. a real fake place. Yeah. And I, I like that you said it like that because a lot of people ask me like, you know, why do you write if you're not trying to be famous or th- and like back when I was doing music, people used to ask me that too. And it's like, you have to do it just for the sake of doing it, just for the sake of making it real, for the sake of it being there, for the sake of the tangibility of it. You know what I mean? Like, and I remember also, and you kind of just said it there, like with, you know, now it's real, you know? And it's like, even if it's only real to you and the one other person on the planet that reads the book, that's still enough, you know? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's something that I think years ago, probably when I was other attempting other like novels and whatnot, was something that I struggled with was like, I felt like I needed to make something very good because like its success was very relevant to me. Whereas now I feel like it's more like, I want to make this as good as I can for myself, but that's about it. Right. That's where my interest kind of stops. Right. If it, if it only ever stays with me, that's perfectly fine. But like, it's a, it's a personal fulfillment objective that's it right and not only that but like but still like at least for me the sake of like putting it out there even like oh yeah 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 even if only one other person reads it it's like that's still like you never know it's like if in 10 years from now or even long after you're dead like somebody happens to find your book on amazon or something and like it inspires them that's still like there's something to be said for that you know i don't know oh totally yeah yeah, so it's like even just putting it out there and making it possible for anyone to have access to it, you know, make it the the possibility is the enticing part. But like then pushing it, I mean, if you want to push it, if there's people that like they want to invest money into marketing their product or whatever, then like more power to them. But like for me, that's kind of where it stops is like once it's out there and it's accessible and then maybe just like make a couple of Reddit posts about it or something, then it's like, I usually when I put something out like a new product, whether back in the day was albums and now it's books. Like I spend a day kind of putting it on different places like Reddit and stuff. And then after that one day, I just, I check out, I I take a day to rest. And then the very next day is already like, okay, you know, what's next? What's the next project? And, and like I was saying before that there's usually a month of, of a writer's block after that, but then, you know, that's just part of the process. Yeah. Oh, right. I think that, um, I think that I, I probably kind of like semi misspoke when I said that, like, even if it stays with me, I more meant that, like, it's like, even if it's only significant to me, gotcha. it's a gotcha. thing that like, because this is something that I want to ultimately put out into the world. Gotcha. But like, even if it's only ever me that looks at it and goes like, that's something special that like, that's still what matters is that I can look at it somewhere else other than my brain or my word file on my computer and go that thing's special to me so yeah yeah there's there's a nice feeling of of actually finally making the art it's kind of a similar feeling i would say to um to journaling there's something very cathartic about making like a thought or like an emotion or a memory like translating it physically onto a page there's just something that like seems to relieve the brain when you do that at least for yeah i i me too i feel that with journaling and i also feel that with my blog because like oh yeah 
whenever I do a blog post to me, like I get the same feeling as I do whenever I release a book or back in the day, whenever I was releasing songs, you know, like to me, all those things are equal in my brain. It's all, I, I see it all as art, I guess, you know, even blog posts to me are like a form of art, you know, or a form of self-expression, I guess is the better way to put it, you know? So, yeah. And I yeah. think that that's a pretty underrated part of, I mean, uh, even this podcast too, is part of that. You know? Yeah. That's something yeah. that I, wasn't expecting to be true of these when we started them mm-hmm. but i very much enjoyed them from the perspective of just like i don't <laughs> basically none of the stuff we talk about if you asked me on the street like do you care about this thing enough to talk about it for two hours i'd be like what no what are you talking about <laughs> but then when we actually start these it's more just like it's fun to just like do the mental exercise of like think about this thing and think about like how it makes you feel or like why it did this and what it did and and like then it suddenly turns into two hours and it's like oh yeah i guess i guess i could talk about that for two hours yeah okay but i never would have like thought that i could or would or ever want to so right yeah yeah good stuff yeah and i'm I'm, uh i don't know i don't know when i'm gonna be done with it but i am i i mean people there are people who take it way more seriously than me but i am actually going to try and make a huge concerted push on it during um november because november is nano nano month nano rimo nano rimo yeah um i again i don't really care about finishing it in that month or anything like that and i've already started it outside of that month so i violated the rules but uh it's more of a thing where it's just like maybe maybe some good juju will come my way during this nanorimo because it's nanorimo so yeah loosely i have a goal of getting through most of it by the end of november we'll see how that goes um but that's generally my perspective on it and i would say so far I feel pretty good about that. Nice. Um, so there's that, what is it like October 14th? So there's, there's like two more weeks of October. Um, and then, yeah, I'll, I don't know how much I'll get done in those two weeks, but then it'll be November and it'll be busy, busy writing time. Um, and I guess what I mean by, uh, by prioritizing it in November is that still every day I write in that sandbox thing. Yeah. And I'll probably limit my writing in that sandbox thing during that month. I'll probably yeah. still do it every day, but I'll write less of it. Right. Right. And I'll use my writing energies to write the novel. Right. 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 And for anybody listening, all negative three people, as Tom likes to say, <laughs> uh, who don't know, NaNoWriMo is national novel writing month. And, uh, it's basically just like a challenge where you like to, to write a book in a month. You don't win anything or anything like that. It's just a motivational thing. Uh, 50,000 words, I think, is the limit. That's why I said 50,000 words earlier. So it's like people try to motivate themselves to write 50,000 words all in the month of November. Uh, so, Which is a yeah, lot. It is a lot. And there's a concert starting right outside my window. So I'm going to move over to a different part of my apartment here to try to escape the noise. <laughs> I don't have know if you, you were. Um, have Go you ahead. ever like uh, semi participated in NaNoWriMo? 
Uh, no, I think I thought about it once. Again, this was okay. back six years ago, back when I was still writing the post-apocalyptic stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah, okay. I think I thought about trying to pull an Anorimo with uh, with one of those. Uh, so that would have been like uh, I don't know, twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen, something like that. But I, I didn't end up doing it. I, I still had a long way to go as far as like learning what kind of writer I am and finding my voice and everything like that. Gotcha. But uh, there is also there's a different NaNoWriMo I think that happens in April that's like for uh, for novellas and novelettes and stuff, which is more the kind of stuff that I write. I think oh, there you it's do like that. yeah, you only have to write. I think it might be exactly half, like twenty five thousand words instead of fifty thousand words. It's something like that. It's it's like a a warm up NaNoWriMo, I guess. Or, I mean, uh, dude. 50,000 words in a month is not simple things. No, it is not. not. Like, like I would say that I would like, I would say that I write a lot. Um, I think that, I think that my sandbox thing is closing in on a million words. And I started it. I started it two, two years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's 500,000 words a year. So that's a, that's like 50,000. Well, that's 500,000 divided by 12, whatever, whatever that is on average. So that's kind of mm-hmm. close. Yeah, that's close, but it's not it. And that sandbox thing is incredibly easy to write because I'm stealing all the characters and all of the setting and everything. Right. Uh, and I don't mind completely ripping off plots and putting spins on them. Um, yeah. Whereas like 50,000 words of like pure new creative energy. That's, that's a bold task. I would say it is. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of people, they admit that when they do NaNoWriMo, they're using it as basically just an opportunity to get a first draft done quickly. Like they're doing like what you described writing without even thinking too hard about it. Even if it doesn't make sense, just keep going, you know, and then that way, it's like at least at the end of the month, you have a solid first draft that you can now revise in the future. Because, the you know, once you have a first draft, you basically have a foundation, you know. Oh, yeah. Once you have a first yeah. draft. In my experience, the quality increase over a first draft to a second draft, if you have a first draft, you probably have a ticket to something that is pretty darn good. Like, competence-wise, I would say, like, if you f- actually have the dedication to finish a first draft, you're probably sitting on something that's like fairly good. Well, I will say this, because talking about the post-apocalyptic stuff that I used to write back in the day, I wrote, I think, maybe like three full drafts of that. And then mm-hmm. like other dra- and none of them were good. But again, I was very young and I would that was my first time really taking writing seriously. So I really had a lot to learn. But. At the very least, what I was able to, what I did write in that story, I have since taken lots of different little bits and pieces from it and have repurposed them into lots of other stories that I've written since then, including a lot of the stuff that I, well, actually, I don't really know if any of that made it into Next Star Over Sunrise Order, but a lot of it did make it into other stories that are in real enough, uh, stories that I might expand on in the future and things like that, so it was definitely still a fruitful thing, even if the actual product itself never really reached a, com- a completion state, you know? Yeah. I think I see what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I guess the way that I'm sort of thinking about it, and I guess I'm thinking about it in the context of like um, what I'm writing now is like, if I get to the end of a first, 
draft. That probably means that I've gotten to an ending that I feel like is like pretty satisfying. Uh huh. Because if anything, like by the end of the first draft, the thing that I'll be taking the most seriously by that point is the ending because it'll be the last thing that I write. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll have the motivation to take it kind of seriously. But, uh, and I feel like at least, at least for me, it's like up front do a lot of the character work and then be sitting on the ending as well and probably some plot points in between there's there's a certain extent to which writing almost feels like a doing a sudoku puzzle where it's like there gets to be like a certain critical mass where it's like you're kind of just filling in numbers it's almost like the thing starts writing itself because oh yeah writing is almost like i don't know i i have mixed opinions about this but like I, I think that art is wonderful and everything, but I think that kind of people kind of overrate how much art is like, it's just pure magic. It's whatever. It's like, no, there are things that make sense and there are things that don't make sense. Yeah. Like it, there just are. And it's like at a certain point you start ending up with so many plot points that are filled in that like the glue between them just kind of becomes intuitive. So yeah, that's kind of with Sunrise. That was kind of because, like you saw, I wrote it out of order. I started, I wrote the beginning, then I wrote the ending, and then I doubled back and wrote the middle. Yeah, that's actually and, a great example. Yeah, and the middle is basically like you described it. It's basically just been writing itself. So, yeah, and exactly. Yeah. Like it's it's kind of like you did the work up front to mm-hmm. like. It's like okay, I have my establishing work, and then I have my conclusion, and now it's just like well, how does one get from point A to point B? Yeah, and not only that, but it was also, I had to do it that way in order to take the pressure off myself because the way it's structured, oh, yeah. like I said, it's three different stories all going on at once. And the, the, the final part is like arguably the most important story because it's, it's where you, you catch back up with what the protagonist from the beginning of the book has been up to, basically. Yep. So I was like, okay, well, I could at least write this and then even if I get burnt out after this, I could basically just release a smaller book. You know what I mean? Where like, I don't have all that stuff in the middle because even though that stuff in the middle adds like a a nice flavor to it, it's not quite as essential as the stuff that's happening with the main, main protagonist, you know, like, so I kind of uh, did it that way also because it was like a a way for me to take the pressure off myself. That that's definitely a big part of becoming a writer is figuring out all different ways to take, alleviate the pressure. Yeah. Figuring out generally what, works for you because i mean there are so many books on writing and there's so many people with opinions on writing but like really taking the time to kind of like figure out what works for you and do what's best for you and lean into that is very smart because it's like Mm. you're never going to enjoy writing a book someone else's way yeah like like if i had to try to write a book your way i think i would like i i i pop a fuse (laughs) well to be fair you you call it quote unquote my way but this is the first time that I'm doing it. Doing this way. it. Well, so the, the, the way you described, I guess. Is yeah, well, this is the first way, time that I'm doing it this way. So you actually never know. Maybe eventually you'll write something this way and you'll go like, oh, this is pretty nice. I, I mean, guess, yeah, I, true. I, I guess I really need to learn to never say never. Because <laughs> yeah. I... Every time I finish a book, I've told you I'm never going to write a book again, and then <laughs> it just keeps. Then you just keep doing it. Well, yeah. it's it's the thing is like if you asked me how if you told me five months ago that I would be writing a book in five months, and then you, they said like yeah, but you would start writing it without any strong idea of like what the plot is, I'd be like, 
oh, that sounds like a pretty stupid project that I'm working on. But like <laughs> now I'm like, oh no, it feels, it feels pretty nice. It feels, uh, feels pretty good to do it this way. I should be doing it this way. So, you know, uh, things change. I don't even know. I guess it was that screenwriting book or whatever that I read, but yeah. Um, sometimes it just happens. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I guess you never know. And uh, with my own future, but I guess the way I see writing now is that I like to look at my books, even just as a, like next star over is, is like uh, divided into five sections. I see each of those five sections as a short story onto themselves. And same thing with this book that I'm working on now. And same thing, even with other potential books that I have in mind for the near future, uh, you know, like I I like to see it more like that, where like you're just looking at like you you already have the ending in mind, but but there's a way for it to work in a one step at a time fashion as well, where like you could just focus on what's right ahead of you, you know? Yeah, see, that's something that I'm discovering that I enjoy quite a bit about writing it this way is that, um, well, you haven't you haven't finished seasons uh, two and three of Avatar: Last Airbender, but you have finished season one. And yeah, we've discussed that, and one of the things that we totally agree on is that one of the best parts of Avatar: Last Airbender season one is how it feels like every I shouldn't say every, but most of the episodes are their own little self-contained journey. Yeah, but you know you're getting good character development there. Um, and everything so they're ultimately contributing to a bit of an overarching narrative but they feel mm-hmm. like kind of their own bite-sized chunks and that's sort of what you're talking about there is that like each step exactly in, in next are over is like their own thing and each step in in sunrise order is kind of their own thing and it's mm-hmm. like um that is something that i've it's doing it wrong it's not perfect it's the first draft it never will be perfect blah 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 but that is something that I've found easier about writing this in a very pantsy way is that I think of an idea of like, Oh, what would happen if the main protagonist needed to enter the spirit world for this reason? And then I can write that almost as like a short story that is inside the novel and then figure out how it applies to the rest of the story. Yeah. And it feels really good to write it that way. Right, right. And with you saying it in those words, it does make me kind of more open to that idea of trying to become more of a pantser myself, you know, uh, because there is a big part of me that does like the one step at a time approach. It's just that there's also another part of me that really likes knowing where you're going. You know what I mean? Oh, dude, totally. Uh, Trust me. This is totally unfamiliar territory for me, and I'm not saying that it's a hundred percent great either. Like, yeah, there are things where my my brain sometimes I go like, "How the heck do I not know what's happening four scenes from now? I know what's happening right. one scene from now. I know what's happening two scenes from now, but after that, I have no clue. Deep, that yeah, is not okay. Off the deep end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think it's like the brain, the human brain has like a fight or flight response where like you want that safety net and it's like knowing the ending, you knowing what's on the horizon is that safety net, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I would say this, um, Stephen King, he has wonky endings. I'll say that. And general, but generally speaking, I do very much enjoy his books. They feel very authentically him. Mm-hmm. I would say this, infamous infamous outliner man where everything fits together is brandon sanderson 
Mm. And I would say this. I very much enjoy Mistborn, his, his the first book in the Mistborn trilogy. Yeah. But there is a certain extent to where some of the books of his that I've read feel like they suffer a little bit from the Marvel syndrome that people have been complaining about. Yeah. It feels like everything needs to link together because the whole book series is just essentially an outline that's going to the ultimate ending. But it's like, dude, there's kind of like, isn't there a more important obligation to make each individual book good rather than worry about where all 20,000 books combined are going? Yeah, I'll admit, even though I, I do like outlining and stuff like, People who say like, oh, yeah, I have an outline for like a 10 book series that that's a little worrisome to me. Yeah, there's there's right. There's outlining and then there's outlining. Right. right. And it's like um, to to even an certain extent with this current thing that I'm writing, I outline like I outline the plot in that I, as I said, like there's, you know, there's a uh, 10 8 to 10 dozen I don't know plot events and scenes down the line that I know need to happen so mm-hmm. it's like I have those in mind and I know that they're kind of like they're almost like little checkpoints but yeah broadly speaking I don't outline and it's like I'm not outlining for this uh, and yeah there's there's just such a thing as over outlining uh, yeah. over outlining and it can sometimes make I think your narrative feel a little like on rails or yeah, like on the nose or predictable or yeah, that too. Yeah. 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 Which a lot of people say that about Marvel and, uh, and I'll admit sometimes I even feel that even with my own stuff, you know? So yeah, no, it's true. There's uh, a, there's definitely a fine line to tread here. Like you, you were mentioning that, like I'm a big themes guy, but one thing that is a, a detriment to that is that, sometimes I worry that because I focus so much on that stuff that I feel like I'm beating the audience over the head with whatever my moral is. You know what I mean? That like, I'm like force feeding the moral down the audience's throat. I don't know. Yeah. Broadly speaking, that's why I stay away from, well, at least originally, I guess I'm defying all of my typical rules with this book. Mm -hmm. Um, But broadly speaking, that's sort of why I, I get like very nervous about that feeling myself um so that's why i always avoid thinking about like theme too hard heavy-handed like making it feel that i was trying to look for the right term there but yeah heavy-handed is is a good way to put it i I, is a yeah and it's like uh yeah like i guess it's like a feeling this so this is the this is the double-edged sword of really strong emphasis on theme is yeah it can backfire and it can feel like heavy handed or like on the nose or a little bit like preachy or whatever, whatever term you want to use. But there is a feeling of it when the theme is very on the nose, but like that it's still in this zone of enjoyableness where it, it becomes like a, it becomes like, it's like one of Aesop's fables. It like, yeah, it crosses over into like that timeless feeling when you really get it right. It feels like, it's like a I feel like it's a very high risk high reward thing where like yeah yeah it can it can if you don't stick it it's like it's like oh yeah I get it man stop but like if you do yeah exactly as you said it feels like timeless it feels like you're almost right go ahead I was gonna say it feels like it's like 
ethereal or like part of like the just the dna of culture yeah you know yeah that magic that it it makes it feel like you're almost writing a myth you know what i mean like exactly yeah so again very high risk high reward i i stay away from it i guess because i'm a more conservative writer in that regard i i i don't know if i necessarily like low risk things but i don't know if i like that high risk of things but there is merit to it Mm -hmm. Uh, there there definitely is is an appeal to it and i i see it right and i think that's why i gravitate towards it i find it you know like uh for for me that's like where the sex of a story is you know Mm, interesting yeah yeah. that's a good way to put it Mm. well i would say this i mean uh, this is this uh, novel, which, as you can probably tell, I don't really have a title for yet uh, because I keep calling it this novel. Um, <laughs> yeah, I but, never that never crossed my mind. <laughs> uh, this this novel, uh, just call it that. <laughs> this novel, but this novel, I would say I'm kind of defying all of my rules, and it's funny enough, like the best thing that I've like felt about while writing it, and uh-huh. it's, I'm pantsing way more than I usually do, and like theme was something that I like immediately was playing with in my mind and like centered my story around. So like, I'm completely defying all of my previous expectations of myself. Mm. So, yeah. I guess I'm, I guess I just decided to break out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Well, it seems to be working for you. So maybe if I ever hit another one of my brick walls and it lasts for like several months, I need to like do something that's also the complete opposite of what I, you know, completely pants things, not have a theme in mind, you know, like go against the grain of what I've done before. You not break things out into sections that could work as their own short stories, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, you never, you never know. I, I, I definitely would say this is something that's been surprising to me mm. is uh, I mentioned that uh, I've mentioned it a couple times now, the, the sandbox thingy that I write, the sandbox fan fictiony thing that I write. Yeah, this is something that's very fascinating about it. When I, for the record, to all negative three people that are listening to this, um, that was that was like a fun family thing that I started with my brother when I was like six and he was like eleven, mm. and we probably did it. We probably wrote it pretty consistently up until, I guess maybe like. I was like 14, I guess. And he was like 18, 19. That's probably Uh about it. And then we stopped uh, for a while. And then during the pandemic, right at the beginning, it was literally like in March that I started writing this again. I decided to like thematically reboot it with like a totally different setting and totally different characters. Not the ones that we used when I was like six and he was 11. But uh, thematically rebooted and then I started giving it to him to read and he was like oh this is pretty cool that you're revisiting this but what's interesting is when I first started writing it it kind of felt like it was like ah the freedom of just writing trash and like I was very much enjoying it for that perspective but it's weird I think that at a certain point I started writing so much of it as I said I've written basically like a million words in the last two years hmm. I think I started writing so much of it that it's actually like crossed a threshold where I'm like getting better at writing because of it. Uh, I mean, that that's what those kinds of things are supposed to do. I know, but it's not, it's, it's crazy to me that like a stupid, essentially fan fiction thing has grown to such a point. It's longer than Lord of the Rings now Yeah, that it's like, 
it feels like I actually am learning things from it, even though it's like a stupid comedy story. It's very strange. I almost want to read it, but I'm scared to if it's like <laughs> Luke Skywalker versus Scooby-Doo in the Matrix or so, because it sounds like that's what that is, right? It's like, uh, it, yeah, I mean, this this one is... Uh, it's probably a lot of characters that you just fundamentally don't know, but it's set in the world of the video game Skyrim. Oh. So you wouldn't really get anything. No. No. But, I mean, it. I, I probably, even if you asked me to give it to you, I probably wouldn't because it's a family thing. But, yeah, uh, that's <laughs> no, no I was just like, but, no, no, it's okay. It's just like, <laughs> it was a hypothetical, like, you know, you said a million words. I, it just made me wonder, like, well, you know, what could be so inspiring that you write a million words? You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a thing. I'll tell you that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's very strange though because um i think it's because i think it what it is is that i read so much advice about writing and then i use the sandbox as places to apply it just to like test how it feels that i've like slowly started to figure out that it's like oh this is what works for me and yeah. then i like get to use that it's like a cheat code i get to like use that information for things that i actually care about yeah it's very strange well when you put it in those words though it makes a lot of sense but yeah i wonder if other authors i wonder if there's any other author in the world there has to be that like has something like that probably but not only that like let's face it all stories start out as fan fiction in some shape or form anyways like star wars started as flash gordon fan fiction that is true absolutely Next, yeah, I mean, star, this next is... star over started as Star Wars fan fiction. You know? Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is much more literally fan fiction because yeah, I'm yeah. just stealing characters. But yeah, that is a good point is that everything kind of started as like, oh, like, I really like Lord of the Rings. I'm going to write Wheel of Time. I, I, yeah, I actually think that in the case of Star Wars, not only was Flash Gordon an influence, but I, I think he basically took the plot of the Hidden Fortress, the, the Kurosawa movie. And just like put it in space, and that was like literally his first draft of Star Wars. I could have sworn I heard that somewhere. Uh, so. I mean, I could totally believe it. That's not too far off from what you're describing, I think. But... I mean, to be fair, if if I'm being, and I wouldn't even, I I was about to say if I'm being very ungenerous to myself, but I don't think that being inspired by things and pointing that out is being ungenerous. If I'm being very uh, straightforward about it, I would say like I'm very very much just taking that game sleeping dogs and putting it in an urban fantasy world like well that game is so that that's just there's no fantasy elements in that game it's oh just... no there's no fantasy elements it's like a crime thriller gotcha, like it's like gotcha. about like um it's about like he comes back and he starts working for the hong kong police department and he finds out that his like friends He's are working tri- for the mob or whatever are triads exactly yeah. yeah so yeah so there's like a little bit of that um, but there's no fantasy elements gotcha. at all or anything like that. So gotcha. It's like I'm taking that and a little bit of like the character work in Teen Titans and putting some avatar magic into it. Yeah. And that's about it. Like if I'm if I'm being the most blunt about it. So that's basically just taking Flash Gordon and the Hidden Fortress and putting it in space, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
it's it yeah. is funny to like try to break down stories into essentially like their biggest three components. Their DNA. Yeah. Yeah, like obviously everything is made up of billions of things. You couldn't even catalog all of the no the inspirations. But like if you just limit yourself to like what are the three biggest influences uh in Star Wars? Like uh samurai movies, Flash Gordon and, and World War World II. War II. <laughs> yeah. Yeah basically those three things and like when you think about it like it's like when if you walked up to somebody and said like star wars is just flash gore and world war ii and samurai movies they'd be like what and then if they thought about it for a moment they go oh yeah <laughs> I yeah guess that is right the jedi or the samurai like all the, the empires the nazis stuff is, yeah is the world war ii stuff and then it's in space <laughs> it's flash yep. gordon so it's pretty mean, cool yeah you know there's a little bit of dune sprinkled in there you know a little bit of new gods but like th- those are the three biggest things for sure yeah absolutely yeah and yeah, I guess, uh, um, I mean, there's a very good book. Uh, it's like a, it's like borderline, like a book that like a five-year-old could read cause it's written so plainly and it's so short, but, and it's like illustrated, I think, but it's, I think it's called steel, like an artist. And it's basically exactly that. It's basically saying like, really, when you think about so many of the greats, I think they cite Quentin Tarantino so much in that as like that guy. Like if you you watch old movies and you see Quentin Tarantino shots and you go like, "Wow, that's impressive!" They they ripped off Quentin Tarantino twenty years before Quentin Tarantino started moving making movies, and then you go, "Wait a minute, mm-hmm. Tarantino stole that!" Yeah, and it's like that really is a lot more of things than I think people. Th- Thing. Oh yeah, all great artists stolen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, d- uh, oh, the better way to say it is, all great art is love letters. Yeah, yeah. Like, but it's just it's just cooler to say stolen. <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah, I don't really like that because it sounds malicious. But yeah. uh, it's like stolen implies like you know IP theft. Yeah, and, like that is a thing that actually happens. But I do agree with you is that all. Uh, stolen sounds way more compelling <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah yeah love letters yeah that's it, it really is essentially that yeah i mean basically everything tarantino has ever done is just it's a, a love, love letter, letter. Yeah. yeah and i mean his most recent film is his most meta love letter ever love letter to hollywood in general so exactly like, i i do wonder he says i, I could have sworn he said he was going to make one more he always said that he wanted to make 10 movies that was technically his ninth i wonder if he's even going to make another one because like that that I don't really know how much more meta he could get, or how much more love lettery he could get. You know, like yeah, what's there left like, to do? I feel like in his last two, he became like the most meta that he could, which is like the Hateful Eight. Like so much of his film techniques were inspired by those old westerns. Yeah, and well, then, Django Unchained also Django Unchained too. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, I mean literally like the the once upon a time in hollywood is called once upon a time in hollywood right it's also about when he basically views a, like the transition of essentially like his childhood ending right. is almost like a good way to put it is like his his um starry-eyed allure towards hollywood being broken yeah uh, and it's like he like he like fan fictioned an alternate history where that starry-eyed lord didn't last forever yeah. yeah and it's like 
dude, I think that's I think that's your final movie. <laughs> yeah, it really feels like it. And he hasn't said, you know, he hasn't done any. It's already been three years. He hasn't said anything or done anything. So yep. I, I don't know. Maybe he's done. Yeah, I was amazed. Like, obviously, personal taste and everything. But I was amazed when I heard, like, a couple of my friends watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and leave it. And they're like, I don't like it. And it's like, well, okay. I mean, I guess. You know, I guess you're just stupid. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, I mean, that was almost my thought. I was like, I guess it's like, you know, you can like or dislike anything for any reasons, but it's like, did you not get it? Because I mean, yeah. like, I feel like if I feel like if it's one of those things where it's like, you got what he was going for, you'll at least leave it like, oh, that was charming. Like, yeah, that like I I see what he's going. For. That was fun. Like, <laughs> that reminds me, I was uh, on an airplane uh, with my mother, with my family. We were traveling, and my mother happened to be right next to me. And it was right when that movie had come out, I think, on DVD. So they had it on the airplane, and so she watched it. And I was watching. I had already seen it, so I was like watching different movies at the time. But over, every now and then, I would like look over at her screen and be like, "Oh boy, here it comes." And then when it gets to the part where yeah, they totally fuck up the Manson family. Emily. Yep. She her face just like did this funny thing. I it, like contorted in this weird way that I had never seen. And she like she legit like looked around at the people around her, almost like thinking, like, what the fuck is going on? And is anybody else watching this kind of thing? It was yep. And it was just it was glorious to see. But she also didn't like it, and it's because you know she didn't get it. She doesn't really I don't think she really is familiar with like the history of like old Hollywood or whatever. So, you know, but yeah, it's yeah. just one of those weird things where, like, I would. You either say, know it or you don't. You know? Well, and also, I guess I wouldn't say that I like. It's not one of his top movies to me or anything. No, no, no. And, at, at the end of the day, Pulp Fiction will always be his masterpiece. You know, well, and also, it's just one of those things yeah. where, like, I don't. I don't even know if, like, the way that I think about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like whether i liked it or disliked it it was more just like oh i just watched tarantino like bear his soul in a fan fiction yeah like in an alternate history fan fiction and i just like i don't know it's like like and dislike don't even register for that it's just like oh i see what he's going for yeah it's so personal that like yeah yeah it it just re- it resonates because of the personal aspect of it. Yeah. You know what it almost feels like? It's like if it's like if you read someone's memoir and you just went, "I don't like it." It's like, right? Well, it was their life. What what were they supposed to do? Right. Exactly. <laughs> it it feels very close to that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like it's like a more artisticy licensed memoir, essentially. Right. It's, it's funny it's like it's funny to actually even think about it that way it's like imagine reading someone's memoir and then giving it back to them and go like this book sucks. i hated the character development it's like well sorry i can't rewrite my life asshole <laughs> i didn't like the character development i don't like your life <laughs> well to be fair you do bring up an interesting point though the there's a difference between a memoir and an autobiography. I think a memoir I define as something as like it's based on real life, but you're but you're focusing on one specific Pro- event or Pro- th- you know thing. Whereas an autobiography is basically just this is just a bunch of shit that happened to me throughout my life. And I tend to not really like autobiographies because they just feel very random. And I just wish there was something again thematic, them kind together, of can- like a theme. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I've read bi- autobiographies of people who I'm honestly a big fan of, but I just I think they're crap because it's just like this isn't about anything. Broadly speaking, I would agree with that. I I kind of think about like 
I think of an autobiography as being essentially just at, like what you said. It's just like an aimless, less well thought out memoir. So like, yeah, there's a chance that there's a good chance that you'll run across some interesting things in it where you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. But it's like less likely to be like a cohesive thing that you walk away from and go like, ah, excellent. I understand this person yeah. now. So. Well, well, this is why I hate a lot of the, even though I'm a big rock music fan, I hate most of those like rock uh, movies, like where they like the queen movie and stuff like that, because they're basically just taking uh, like published authorized biographies that are again, not about anything, just about a bunch of random shit that happened to this band and just trying to put it into a movie. And it feels like the movie's about fucking nothing. Like it gets really draining after a while, I guess just because of the way I think about stories and stuff. But like, you're almost better off doing a TV show of that instead of a movie. So that like each episode could be about a little something, you you know what I'm trying to say? Or, you know, no, I know what you're trying trying to say is like, I think that, I think that we sort of romanticize our lives in the structure of like the hero's hero's journey. journey. Yeah. But then like, when you actually try to tell a story that is more just of anecdotes from your life, you kind of realize that it's like, oh, this is why we made the hero's journey is like, that makes shit make sense. Right. Whereas this is just one day you did this, the next day you did that, this five years past this happened. Duh, duh, duh. And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. It's, it's weird because it it's sort of like, Obviously, we don't live our lives in the hero's journey, but somehow those like biographical movies, they lose the charm of actual life because they do artificial time skips and stuff. Yeah. But then they also don't have the charm of the hero's journey where it's like things are tied together and there's like forward motion. Right. It's kind of like the worst of both worlds. Right. Right. It's like a double edged sword. It's really awkward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, like you, what you were saying before about like not understanding why people didn't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, on the flip side of that, I don't understand how people liked that fucking Queen movie. Did anybody? Uh, yes. All my oh. friends and family were like, wow, that was awesome. And I can't believe they had such an amazing story. And it's like you, you, a fucking four year old can tell you that this was all made up. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it. I thought it was reviewed pretty badly. Oh, well, critics didn't like it, but like I'm talking like general audiences, like all my coworkers wouldn't shut up about how amazing it was and my family oh, really? wouldn't wow. shut up about how amazing it was. Yeah. Shit like that. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Th- there's something like, I feel like there's also just something like, uh, I don't even know how to say it. Like, it's like, I mean, obviously Freddie Mercury is, is dead, but like, I can't imagine ever wanting one of those movies to ever be made about myself oh i'm sure you would have fucking hated it it, because it's just like it's so like weird it's like this weird mix of like self-aggrandizement but also just outright false in many places yeah because not only that go ahead i was just gonna say it's another situation where it's just kind of the worst of both worlds it's like an ego maniac that isn't even telling like the real cool things they did (laughs) Yeah, because the thing about the Queen movie is that the whole movie makes Freddie look like he was a crazy drug addict party 
nut job and it makes the other members of the band look like they were goody two shoes the whole time that's because the other members of the band are fucking alive and they're and they're in control of the script and they want to make themselves look good you know what i mean like uh it's the same thing with the nwa movie making easy he look like a pussy even though in real life he was like the, probably the most gangster out of all of them you know like yeah, yeah that's that's pretty that's pretty sad when you put it that way i didn't even really like again i haven't watched it mm-hmm. i didn't even know that it's like a it's like a they're like speaking ill of the dead basically yeah and oh, like because that that was one way people tried to defend that movie when i brought up on the internet and stuff like oh it's all bullshit they're like well it's not supposed to be telling the real story it's supposed to be a celebration of freddie's life and it's like yeah it's celebrating him by making him look like a dick <laughs> like i don't what's there to <laughs> what's it celebrating <laughs> oh man that's sad yeah i didn't know that yeah fuck that movie um i will say this though one autobiography movie that i really liked is the steve jobs movie. not not the first one with ashton kutcher the one they did a couple years later with michael fassbender uh Mm. because that one was basically just this abstract like experimental it made it very clear from the get-go like hey this is not this is not the real story and we're not trying to make you think it's the real story like this is you know because the whole movie takes place entire. It's divided into three acts. Act one takes place entirely backstage at uh, the reveal of the Macintosh in 1984. And then um, the second act takes place entirely backstage at the reveal of the next computer. Remember when he left Apple and did that other company called Next? You're right. In 1991. And then the final act takes place when he entirely backstage at the reveal of the iMac in 1998 when he came back to Apple. And it's like, yeah, that's a very, you know, rigid structure where like even a four year old could figure out that this is not the real story. This is just a framework that's being used to tell the story. You know, this is just a backdrop, a convenient backdrop, you know, like uh, do you you know what I'm getting at? No, 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 I do. It's like it's almost like they turned the autobiography into a bit of like a mythos sort of. Yes, yes, exactly. Because there is sort of like a mythology to that. Oh, my. Like those keynote speeches. He was famous for that, you know, Mm -hmm. like and in all three sequences, he's wearing the fucking uh, turtleneck thing. I'm pretty sure. If oh, I remember man, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it's like you said, it turned it into a mythology. That's why I liked it. Yeah. And I think I feel like that is kind of the correct way to do an autobiography is to like. Yeah. Oh, well, the Elton John memoir works kind of right. is that like it's like you're applying storytelling techniques to and your life. taking liberties with your life. Life. Yeah. To That's... like reframe it. Right. The Elton John yeah. movie. I forgot about that one. It also does that. It also oh, it, it, it turns his the whole movie is actually a trippy musical where like it, they, they just like break out into song and dance on the street like the old school old school kind of musical. And like there's like trippy acid visuals and stuff. So like, yeah, that or like scenes where like he's talking to his younger self, you know, like mm-hmm. so that so that movie is like also an abstract mythologized version of Elton John's life. You know, I like so. that yeah that's the way to do it well yeah and also like uh look at at once upon a time in hollywood like quentin tarantino didn't make an autobi uh, didn't make an autobiographical movie of him where he goes man i wish that the mansons didn't do what they did he made a fictional movie where the mansons didn't do what they did <laughs> yeah exactly as a love letter to hollywood like he like he like used that creative part of his brain to recontextualize thoughts that he has and beliefs that he has and wishes that he has and memories into a story as opposed to just 
sitting in front of a camera going, man, didn't it suck when the man's... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he know, wasn't yeah. cynical about it. Right, exactly. So we are not cynical about that movie. <laughs> there we go. We're, yeah. that's, we, you, all negative three people who listen to this got a free review, <laughs> a free cynical about things review of Once Upon a Time, Upon a time in Hollywood. We are not cynical about it. <laughs> exactly. But, but yeah, no, like, it, it's almost like they work more like poems, like movies like that, like yeah. Hollywood and, and the Elton John movie and the the second steve jobs movie i can't even believe there's two of them <laughs> yeah that is really weird yeah there's actually three of them if you count there was this one directed dvd movie that came out back in like 2000 or 2001 about the rivalry between bill gates and steve jobs wow there's there's going to be more movies about steve jobs than there will be uh ad- adaptations of dune yeah steve jobs cinematic universe confirmed <laughs> yeah steve jobs which, which one is the one <laughs> Where, like, he isn't there one where, uh, what's his name, Seth Rogen or whatever plays Wozniak? That's that's in the Michael Fassbender, that's in the one I like, the the trip. Oh, okay, I've seen, one. I've seen scenes from that one where, like, they're like in the theater and they're yelling at each other. Yes, that's a great scene. Yeah, yeah, and Wozniak's like, I made this, you bitch. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't do shit. And then Steve Jobs is like, Yeah, but I'm Steve Jobs, and Wozniak's like, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> and and the real Steve Wozniak actually uh, in, uh, supported that movie. Like, he helped with the writing process and, like, Oh, nice. It. That's good to know. Uh, yeah. And it actually shows humility because, like, Wozniak in that movie is not portrayed as, like, a perfect person either, you know? So, like... Yeah. I've always gotten the perception that Wozniak, like, the real guy, uh, has, like, a pretty healthy perspective on all of that, I would mm-hmm. say. Like, he's... He seems like fairly humble, yeah. Right, exactly. Like he gets that it's like, well, you know, he had his vision, I had my vision, blah 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 blah. Yeah. And yeah. Sometimes those came into conflict and sometimes they didn't. Yeah. Actually I think he even said because the the other one, the Ashton Kutcher one, really plays up the whole Steve Jobs was an asshole angle. And I think Wozniak even said, like, yeah, he's portrayed as way too much of an asshole there, and I'm portrayed as way too much of a nice guy there. <laughs> like, he said oh, about, about the other one, yeah. <laughs> huh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I like Wozniak. Yeah. He's, like, turned into, like, a big uh, tech, like, I don't even, educator guy. Well, what does he do now? Because he's not at Apple anymore. Right? I think he so. just like does uh, speaking events, and like um, he's like one of those people who like uh, tries to promote STEM in schools and stuff. I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, just kind of like a charitable fellow. Yeah, well, he's got the money to do that, so. Oh, I mean, uh, the guy's probably <laughs> loaded. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I guess like on the subject of autobiographies, uh, either do that like the abstract experimental thing if you're going to cover like a huge time span that can't be crunched into a two-hour hero's journey, or just really pinpoint it down to just one event, like one really important event that like yeah, this needs to be a movie. Like, uh, I, was it the the one where Joaquin Phoenix plays Johnny Cash, where the whole movie is just focused on his relationship with the woman? that's like literally the only thing that the movie's about like like stuff right. like that yeah right well actually uh if you don't mind me changing topics a little bit go ahead uh, this is actually an interesting thing that uh, i'm i'm curious for your opinion on it i can't i can't guarantee that i'm going to actually use any information that we discuss here but uh this is something that i haven't mentioned about the novel that i'm writing 
but you saying that like focus on one event thing made me think of this was uh in the in the book i used two different time points um and by that i mean there are some chapters that are titled then which is flashbacks to the past before the guy left Hmm. and then there are chapters and there are more of these chapters that are titled now and that's the present and so this is an interesting thing was i use as you would imagine the then segments to show a lot of what the original relationships between these characters were like and this is something that i've been wondering about do you think it's better if all of the then segments take place on the same day or if they are spread out over time oh i mean i it it honestly depends on the story so i I really don't know okay yeah i mean that's that's a that's an interesting so the reason that i say like the the all on one day thing is like thematically it would be like this is presumably i would pick like the last day before things changed either right. I pick the last day before the tragedy that ultimately caused him to move away happened or i would pick the last day before he moved yeah uh, like the last full day i guess i would say so i would either pick one of those two days if i wanted to pick one day but the advantage of not picking one day is that i can probably use scenes from both of those as i was saying you can do both between yeah. yeah so that's what i was kind of thinking I, about yeah that. if i were in your position with that i would keep my options open i would i would I wouldn't just focus on one day. I like that answer. I think that's a smart answer. Yeah. That's another thing that I always try to keep in mind with anything that I write is like, keep it, keep the world as open as possible to keep the options as open as possible. You know? Yeah, I do agree with that. You have to be very strategic with when you choose to close doors. Cause sometimes it is smart to just commit to something and close doors, but you have to know when to close those doors. Yeah. Because actually an example with Next Star Over is that I mentioned it's five sections. Each section takes place a year apart from each other. The chapter titles are like yeah, year 9,000. Yeah. And well, you, originally I wasn't going to do that. We I, I don't know if you remember us talking about it. Originally I, do. I was going to leave the time skips as vague so that people could imagine like maybe this is a year later. Maybe this is 10 years later. You know, I don't mm-hmm. And But well, the problem is I was reading back through the book when I was done with it and something about it, the pacing didn't like feel right. So I thought like adding the timestamps helped with the pacing, which it probably did. But there's a part of me that still kind of regrets doing that, you know, because it does close some doors, you know, as as purely a reader of it. I do remember because I think um, before you gave me the segments, you kind of like gave me a heads up of like there are time skips here. But I do remember feeling like the time skips were almost like too ephemeral too vague yeah too vague essentially and uh even though the year is kind of like a a hard cut where it's like oh okay this is somewhere in the next year i feel like the fact that it's somewhere just in the next year is sufficiently vague that Mm. my brain doesn't go like wow all of that happened in x number of months or 
like it, my brain doesn't do that because it feels like it's enough time that it's like well anything could have happened true but it's also specific enough that i go like what happened to vera what where is she what is she doing now what so yeah. i actually think that it was a smart decision overall okay yeah good i'm glad to hear that now i'm a little less regretful of that than in that case <laughs> You, because I mean, and you know my opinion about time skips. Uh, I'm very anti time skips, but I feel like if you keep them fairly limited and condensed, uh-huh. they work. They can work pretty well, and I feel like they do in Next Star Over. So okay, that's good. Because like that's the thing is when when you start walking up to me and saying like, "Oh yeah, there's just a time skip that's like five years." It's like nothing relevant happened in five years like what yeah yeah a year felt like a right number for that sort of thing where like it's like you said the middle point between like a lot of stuff could have happened in a year or maybe not much happened in a year but like you see yeah five years that's like there's a lot to skip over <laughs> right like it's a year is like you know there's friends that you check in with regularly and there's friends that you check in basically like once a year uh, once a year twice a year something like that and it's like that once a year time period is the perfect time when it's like you text the person you go hey how's it going and when they get back to you and go like well i'm still with this job i'm still this and you're like okay cool and you you your information is accurate and you're like that makes sense it's only been a year but then sometimes if they get back to you and like, well, this happened and this happened and this happened, you're like, well, that makes sense. It's been it's a been whole a year. year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of like that perfect time zone. Right. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned like the big time skips, though, because uh, I was thinking of, I noticed that a lot of sequels specifically go with one year later because I, I bet you a lot of authors at least subconsciously feel the same way as what you just described. A year yep. just feels like that nice magical number in the middle. But like for instance, Star. One of the things I love about the original trilogy on its own with Star Wars is that the time skips are vague. Like you, you, yeah, you could, aren't there technically like five years between one and two? Or I was about to say when you factor in like the expanded material and stuff, it confirms that there's a three-year time skip between A New Hope and Empire. And I'm sorry, but three years is too much in between the new two. And, it's way too much. And the only reason they did that is because the Empire took three years to make, like in real life. But like come on like uh, luke and leia and han are still doing their love triangle bullshit three years later like that oh that's a really good point i even think about that is like i was just thinking it's like how long could it freaking take the empire to control the entire galaxy to find the rebels (laughs) well well, that too but but i was thinking more. but no the the love triangle triangle thing is actually even weirder yeah what are they high school years yeah even high schoolers would figure it out because figure it out three years would be their entire high school career. And think there are three years of them being, you know, like t- stuck together in this small rebel alliance, you know, like, man, that is some sexual tension right there. You know, <laughs> no wonder the rebels haven't been able to make any progress in those three years after blowing up the Death Star. Their three most prominent figures have been caught in a love triangle goofing off. That, that's actually something that other people see people forget this now but when empire first came out it wasn't as beloved as it is now it did get mixed reviews when it was new and one of the, the criticisms was that it feels like nothing happened in since the the first one that like you know but i i would actually argue against that though to say that if you do keep the time skip vague and pretend that it's only been like a few weeks since a new hope then it's not so bad especially since luke Han and leia do seem to be in more like commanding roles though you know what i mean like they they 
they're becoming more like leaders in empire you know yeah no i would agree with that i i feel like one of i feel like the time skip isn't weird for me until you tell me it's three years like exactly if, if it came out and i mean i would assume that when the movie came out it wasn't stated that it's like oh three years later yeah i don't that, remember when they established that but it wasn't when the movie came out unless it was yeah. a novelization or something but probably not right so like if i were as a person watching it i would just go like oh it's probably like two months later yeah something exactly like you know like they were on the run for like a month and have been settled on to Hoth for a month. But, right, right. You know. And you know what makes it even weirder is that then there's a, an entire year between Empire Strikes Back and Return Jedi. And this is an example of where a year is bad because there's, Wait, no oh, there's an entire year? Yes, there's an entire year between Empire Strikes Back I and Return I thought it was like four months. I thought it was like a few days. Does it really take them an entire year to, to plan Han's rescue from Jabba? Like... Well, I was, thinking, I was thinking it was a few months because of Luke training. Oh yeah, that and, and building also, a new lightsaber and stuff. Yeah, 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 true. And and like Lando needing time to like become a guard and work at Jabba's place and sort of like yeah, exactly, it. like infiltrate everything. Leia getting her bounty hunter uniform or whatever. Okay, yeah, a few months, but but like a year. A year is insane. Yeah, for that for that particular story, they so, left Han frozen for a year. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's really shitty. <laughs> Imagine if a lot of shit happened in that year that he missed out on, which probably. A lot of shit did happen that he missed out on. Yeah. And, and, you know, like the, all the expanded material tries to make justifications for these time skips and stuff. But like, I, I'm, I'm talking about just the movies themselves, like in a vacuum, you know? So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you watch the original trilogy, I don't think any person would assume that it's like three years between a new hope and empire. And, and a year, a between. year between empire and return of the Jedi. People would, I would say people would say, a few months between I would, each. Well, yeah. I would, I would, a few months for each of them, but I would also say that I would guess that most people would assume the gap between a new hope and Empire is longer than the gap between a new hope and Return of the Jedi. Or, sorry, the gap between uh, Empire and Return of the Jedi. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the second one is the smaller of the two, realistically. Right, because there's more urgency for that one, you know, like, yep, we gotta rescue our friend. Yeah. So. That is very strange, though. I thought it was like I thought I knew it was a few years for the first one. Um, I thought it was like months for the second one, which is still a little long, but more realistic. Yeah, but it's a year. That's crazy. Yeah. And doesn't this mean that the Empire built the second Death Star in like four years? That see, that's another one. That's <laughs> yeah. Unless the they were already building it, but why would they be? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you know, gonna Palpatine, Palpatine loves his contingency plans, so wouldn't oh, surprise. Oh, and also probably people would be like, "Well, Palpatine foresaw the destruction of the Death Star." Blah 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 blah. Yeah, or you know, they they knew how to build it faster this time, even though they didn't have Galen Erso this time. <laughs> My entire empire is falling apart, exactly <laughs> as I have foreseen. <laughs> 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 I like how everybody makes out Palpatine to be like this mastermind, but it's like, then why did he fuck up so bad? Yeah. <laughs> multiple times and like even if you count that it's like oh but he wasn't actually dead as confirmed by the rise of skywalker it's like but he still fucked up in the rise of skywalker, skywalker very yeah. badly <laughs> <laughs> he shot lightning at ray and got his face burned off again he's done that three times now <laughs> <laughs> like how many times is he gonna do that 
<laughs> Star Wars Episode Twelve: Palpatine shoots lightning at his face again. <laughs> oh, he's just gonna be like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna do it myself this time," and just like points his fingers at his face. And just he's gonna like do it in a mirror, and it's gonna deflect yeah. off the glass and hit him. Ah. That would be great if episode 12 was here. It's called Palpatine Shoots Force Lightning. That is face <laughs> again. Face and then the opening crawl is just a, a single paragraph that it's like, <laughs> well, just like the title said, Palpatine fired lightning <laughs> at himself and disintegrated his face for the fourth time. You keep re- watching these movies. Haha. And then it does the dot, 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 dot. And then it starts the movie. Mm-hmm. That would be great. Can't wait for 2035 or whenever that'll be. Oh, yeah, that's... Who knows when that'll happen. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure... Well, actually, I'm not entirely sure, but maybe we'll do a cynical about things about it. In the future? In, in 10 in years? Future. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're coming down to the last 50 seconds here, but this yeah. has been enjoyable. Yeah, this was always. good. Yeah. And I feel like... I feel like I spent most of the time talking about my thing, but I still think that I learned some good info about your stuff. Yeah, and I'm really interested in your thing. You know, I, I hope it all goes well. Yeah, so do I. Well, with that said, thanks for listening, all negative three people. And we'll catch you next time on Cynical About Things when Black Panther 2 comes out. Bye. Bye-bye.